Well, let's begin just a small correction of what Paul said, that his definition of life dangerous always ends with death. In Poland, they have a much more precise version of it. It's my favorite Polish slogan, motto. It says, what is life? A disease which is transmitted by sex and always ends with death. You cannot do it any better. But nonetheless, I think we are not simply just mortal beings. This is the position of wisdom. You know, everything ultimately turns to dust, what goes up has to go down, and so on and so on. And in a way which, although I am not formally a believer, in a way which brings us close to a dimension of sacred, metaphysical, whatever you call it, I think there are moments in human life which precisely escape this cycle of wisdom, which magically brings us in contact with simply another dimension. We are out of this. And that's what I think he did with his acts, especially the best-known one walking between, on a rope between, uh, between the Twin Towers. That's why, when I was asked by the German weekly magazine to name five of today's heroes, people who did something of historical importance, among the five, one was Larry David. I think his great achievement is to keep the spirit of provocation against standard version of political correctness. I will not go through others, Assange, Linera, and so on, but he was immediately one of the five. Why? If you allow me, just very briefly. Well, you could have used my name five times. <laughs> uh, that, as a Hegelian, I agree with you, and then, you know, you get in contradiction with yourself, and uh, like Larry David is you in your otherness. But what I seriously want to say is this, that uh, I'm really serious here. Uh, if you permit me a brief metaphysical even introduction. Uh, there are a couple of ways that we can retain what you usually refer to as contact with the absolute. For example, for some mystics is this unity, as they say in Upanishad, between uh, uh, Atman, my soul, and the universe, and so on. There is the opposite vulgar version of Georges Bataille or Marquis de Sade. You identify with radical destructiveness of nature, then moment of beauty and so on. And I claim that what he did is, you cannot use any other words. When he was walking up there, it's a spiritual experience. It's not just this physical daring and so on. It's... it's Almost that you enter, you enter another dimension. And it's why? And then immediately, if you allow me to finish, I will give to, to comment. What is so important is that his act 
doesn't have any deeper humanitarian meaning. You didn't do it to help the starving children in Somalia or whatever. All authentic acts have this reversal of they just serve themselves. As an old Marxist, let me tell you why Marx was also at this level. There is a wonderful letter from his late life of Marx to Engels, where he worries it looked 1870 that there will be a revolution in Europe. And you know what Marx writes to Engels? He says, oh my God, now we will have to do a revolution, but I haven't yet finished writing Capital and so on. That matters most to him. With sexuality, it's the same. An authentic sexual act is an end in itself. That's why, incidentally, I never understood Catholics who claim if it's just for pleasure, it's animal, human must be for procreation. Sorry, as far as I know, animals do it for procreation. Spiritual dimension enters when it's this self-goal. And just a political point to finish this all-too-long introduction. Some stupid leftists, pseudo-leftists, attacked you for that your spectacle just served the financial capital, that you didn't really do anything subversive. I think, on the contrary, if I don't, if you nonetheless try to find uh, emancipatory potential in the horrible crime of ruining Twin Towers, that it was nonetheless a blow to financial capital, no, it was not. His act of... His act of taking the Twin Towers, the symbol of financial capital, whatever, and use it as a background of a great work of art was a much more radical, subversive gesture. You know what he did? My last story. Uh, uh, in Japan, I was discovered, they had, years ago, now it's in decline, a beautiful fashion of... Books are, of illustrations are... Uh, were published on it. You have to construct an object which can effectively function, but it must be so ridiculous that it cannot actually be commercialized. Like, for example, you have glasses with, how do you call it this, against rain uh, wipers so that you can walk on the rain. Or you have, you have butter, but like a lipstick and so on. This is how you overcome technology. You go to the end, you, as it were, destroy it from within. And I think that at this level, what you did is subversive. Why? Because there is another crucial point. It doesn't serve anything. And I agree with you when you pointed out in interviews, when they bore you with this stupid question, but why did you do it? There is no why here. You did it. That's also why I don't care about possible psychoanalytic readings. Did you have some trauma where you locked as a child and then you try to overcome the fear of hate? This all may be true or not, it doesn't matter. Your act was a pure act. It was not, I emphatically claim, an expression of yourself. Because it, this is today's ideology. Whatever you do, you must authentically be yourself, realize your potentials. No, you didn't do this. You became the medium of some, not in a mystical sense, higher force, but you entered a domain which is beyond these human concerns. So, 
asked to this domain, can I ask you a question, then you strike back. As an old neurotic suicidal type, my fear would be this one. People talk about fear of hate. For me, the fear would have been the opposite one. The fear of hate is really the fear of depth. I would be afraid to look down and fall down. And again, that's why I don't even drive a car. I would immediately feel this attraction to just, okay, let's call it a day and drop down. Are you beyond it, or do you also sometimes fear this attraction of falling down? Um, the beauty um, of it for me is that I have no fear. And I have no fear for maybe two reasons. One is I am so much enjoying myself while I approach the territory of the birds and fight for the wind and carry my life in my hands. Um, not risk it, but carry it, which is a more noble gesture. And then the other reason why I feel no fear on the wire is because uh, there is nothing for me to fear since I cannot leave the wire. People use an ugly word. They say falling. I never use that word. I don't even know what it means. I would replace it by flying away from the wire. Falling is another profession. Mine is walking on the wire. Um, so I have no fear because I know, uh, and it will surprise people who would not spend a lot of time in my life and in my private backstage, that I could state something like that. I... Uh, nothing can happen to me. Before I do the first step on the wire, I am certain of being uh, performing a victorious uh, last step. And this uh, solidity of granite is not only in my body, that would not be enough, but it's in my soul. Yeah. And I can prove it. I am indestructible on the wire, and yet uh, we are all mortals and I am very human, so how can I say that? But that's, uh, that's how I feel on the wire. I, the, you put it, my God, now I will envy you because in my philosophical arrogance I'm tempted to say, you go on walking the wire, leave the thinking to me. <laughs> but you put it very nicely now. You see, exactly this I wanted to say when I said that whatever you say, this certainty that you described, in a way you know it, you trust it, you are already on the other side. This is what I meant by entering another dimension. And uh, it's, not, uh, it's not in a vulgar sense something magic and so on and so on. As you put it very nicely, it is a question of soul, I would rather call it a certain spiritual stance, you just uh, believe it, although this is what interests me. Wait a minute, let's begin with clips, because one clip, can you get me please, uh, the, it's just a half a minute, don't be afraid. Clip number two. From I say it's about $1,000 worth of cable, uh, 
and the rigging outfit itself, it's magnificent the way he did it. Did he say anything about why he was doing it? No. Why did you do it? I will, I will explain. I will take the time to say You know, why, why? And that was a very, again, in my way of seeing America, a very American finger-snapping question. I did something magnificent and mysterious, and I got a practical why. And the beauty of it is that I didn't have any why. Why did you do this? Oh, that's the thousand why in this morning. There is no why. It's, remember that one of the greatest mystical phrase, phrases from Angelus Silesius, I think, it's precisely in German, die Rose is ohne warum. A rose is without a why. And again, it's a question of spirit, uh, in what sense? I will now use a metaphor which some people may not like. Uh, the same goes for sexuality. What makes sexuality I'm not afraid to use this term, divine, is precisely that uh, uh, authentically done, or whatever you put it, sexuality is spiritual. In what sense? Let me evoke, I hope you didn't experience it too often, this simple, or not so simple, physical experience. Did it happen to you? To me, unfortunately, it did, that in the middle of lovemaking, you all of a sudden, I don't know how to put it, disconnect. You all of a sudden step outside of the rapture of intense sexuality and look at yourself objectively. And you say, what am I doing here? Sweating, <laughs> making this stupid up and down movements. Or you begin to visualize it in a wrong way. This is an old Christian strategy proposed by saints in medieval times. They say, you see the naked body of your beloved. Just imagine what is two inches beneath the skin, all the glands and so on. But uh, what does this prove for me? Not that intense sexuality can be in contact with the absolute, but it's that it's spiritual. And my next question now, uh, did it ever happen to you I hope not. It wouldn't be very pleasant that you are in this absolute, I don't know how to call it, certainty, trance, I will succeed. And then all of a sudden to ask yourself, sorry for vulgarity, but what's happening here? I'm on a tiny rope between two towers. What a stupid thing to do. Why? You know, this doubt that you step outside and start to see, but it's nonsense what I'm doing, which in some sense it is, but that's what makes so, it great. I cannot talk for the hundreds of wire walkers um, that are performing with no, no, no. You, you, you in the circus. Yeah. I only can talk about how I feel. Yeah. And again, like with fear, there is no doubt on the high wire for me. There is no place for doubt because um, fear is a question mark. Fear is a lack of knowledge for me. Doubt is, uh, is a different kind of fear. Doubt is also a question mark. I hope I can make it. I hope the wire is rigged well enough so it will sustain the tension and my movement. All that is too late. If you have those thoughts of doubts while you are performing, well, your performance is not going to be majestic and will not inspire people to move mountains. The performance will be that of a technician, uh, good or bad, 
trying to uh, deal with the moment mm. and performing is not that well performing is dealing with the moment but not to bring on stage and my stage is a very small narrow dangerous stage um, doubts uh, so no I don't I never 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 have doubts on the wire there is no room the wire is too narrow for me the secret of equilibrium and the the world of doubt again i admire your formulation you know why because uh, common sense idiot i call them in conversation with paul the bearers of wisdom those idiots would have said but nonetheless this is crazy it can happen something happens the for unknown reasons the wire breaks you sleep you really die it doesn't matter then then i will be risking my life then i will be a imbecile um yeah but uh, what i'm saying is that so at no. a certain vulgar material level no no you no. are an imbecile but this is another dimension you know no, when i walk on the wire i am my own engineer which I have a self-taught engineer, and I design uh, the anchor points, I calculated the tension, I even sometimes for a big walk designed the wire and had it manufactured without grease oh, really? with me there. Um, I have some time, like in uh, Frankfurt, I did a, a giant walk from the Paulskirche to the Dome in front of 500,000 people. It took me five years to organize it. It was a multi-million dollar project, and I needed 14 months miles of ropes to guideline the wire i did not order 14 miles and have uh, some workers cut them and bring them to the site for the rigging i went to the factory and i had hundreds of spools of ropes and i asked that they spool the rope from one full spoon to an empty one and i set and i put some soft gloves and i had the 14 miles of rope go slowly through my hands i didn't need to look i know the ropes blindfold and the reason i did that is because you don't create ropes for wire walker you create ropes for lifting things pulling mm. things so if those ropes are going to protect your life isn't that absolutely senseful to want to know every inch of it and as i did that three spools had what we call a factory splice which is a lazy craftsman way of dealing with a rope being stopped in fabrication and you take another rope and you put the strands together and you let it go it's not really a real uh, splice it's a factory splice so if you pull it hard enough it will break mm -hmm. and I will stop leaving that day so people laughed at me and I let them laugh uh, I didn't care um, and I had those 14 miles of ropes go into my fingers and I stopped three times and I did a real splice so that I am still today able to answer mm -hmm. your questions uh, another point you brought it to me what I really admired in your act is this one I can is next feature uh, this uh, unity of this as you described it you are in this state of certainty uh, you know you will succeed but you know this is not just a simple mental attitude what is beneath or behind it is years of hard work absolutely absolutely and um 
Well, maybe I want to uh, ask the audience to go back to the last frame of the little clip that you saw. We don't need to see it, but let me describe it. The last frame was, as I was uh, in the police station arrested after my walk, I uh, gently stole the cap of a cop and I balanced it. Uh, on my nose and the camera, it was a miracle happened to catch me in profile which is the most beautiful way to see a juggler balancing mm -hmm. a hat but if you look at that clip one more time um, you will see that I didn't just balance and then end it with a cap falling on my head I did something that takes a lifetime to understand and to practice mm -hmm. I gave it a quarter of a second stillness, which is I balance, there is a dance of balance and movement, and then a quarter of a second of stillness, and it falls. Without that quarter of a second of stillness, it will be somebody balancing a hat and finishing nicely on, on the head. Nice, cute, thousands of people do that. But how many jugglers have worked so hard on the miracle of balance that they analyze it and realize that if you do something magnificent and if you give it a little moment as a frame of stillness, then it becomes almost mystic, it becomes a miracle. And you don't have to use words. A four-year-old kid in the audience will say, oh, I prefer when he holds one second instead of just putting it and it falls on his head. So this has apparently nothing to do with your last question. But to me, it has a, a lot to do. Because when... I will decide this. Everything has to do with that question. <laughs> because when you stated a second ago uh, that for you it is a marriage of the physical and of the soul it is essentially right and any performance of any kind uh, uh, painting, sculpting, uh, dancing uh, you know for an acrobat uh, in a weird choreography falling because uh, you know there are, they are some uh, there are some rare, uh, rare choreographers that play with gravity all those things have a momentum and uh, I learned that when I uh, studied the, the uh, Buster Keaton memoir, mm -hmm. because what he, what he does is, um, in one of his memoirs, uh, there is no much room here, but he talks about, oh. about tripping. And tripping is very easy. I can teach you tripping. It's, you know, people will do it better than others. But tripping is nothing, unless after you trip, you look at what made you trip. And that was a secret, and again, we're talking about a quarter of a second, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's the secret of a good tripping. And I did that sometimes in Manhattan for fun. I will walk on the sidewalk, and I will trip, and then look, and then I will hide, and I will see people, tourists, you know, having looked at me and going and... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you never know. So anyway, the, the relation of the spirit and the body, which is not being taught in our school these days, yeah. is the, the, the secret of inspiring people and the secret of true life and for an artist performing. Now, again, you, my God, I, I'm so mad at myself that it, all my philosophical bullshit, I missed that point because it's perfect. This moment, half a second, oh, no, half a second, two, three seconds of immobility, this is, for me, what some philosophers would have called direct intervention of eternity into time. 
You know, in the sense of, for a brief moment, although nothing magical formally happened, time, as it were, you get a real-time freeze. Time stops. And I agree with you, what I like is that precisely, no, this is not a simple miracle, another dimension intervenes. You have to do, as you just described, hard, hard, hard work to produce that uh, magical effect. An another thing that I would like to raise yeah. a little bit, in a, a few minutes ago in one of your statements, you uh, even mime with your hands the space between the towers, and you were talking about, again, this act of losing the wire. And, and um, I just want, again, to illustrate the relation of mind and body for somebody like mm -hmm. me who is a self-taught Uh, wire walker, juggler, magician, lecturer, build bar, build bar, uh, be barn builder, author, all those things. And I do drawings too, and I play chess, and I study uh, French wines. Um, so anyway, um, what attracted me between the towers, were not the towers, was the negative space, I'm talking as a painter, that the two man-made building created and I wanted to give life to that space and then the last thing I want to add to your non-question of before was that the void that you mime with your hands the void that for people who are not under my skin believe attracts me in some weird negative way yeah, yeah, yeah. or is a path to my death which is absolutely the opposite that void is sustaining me those clouds upon which I walk have the density of granite I love that rock so I mention it often but you see when we use the word void we uh, people on earth we think void is nothing but 55 years of walking in the void, I can tell you, void is filled. Filled with power, filled with majesty, filled with miracles, filled with gods. And yeah. it is the atheist that is talking. I don't believe in the gods that we yeah. recognize, but I believe in many, many gods. The god of the balancing pole, yeah. the god of the wind, the god of the swaying uh, towers. So for me, when I hear the word void, I know you mean nothing. But for me, the void is filled like a very good chocolate mousse. No, at a certain <laughs> philosophical level, I totally agree with you, and if nothing else, now I'm making a quick jump, but if you give me three hours, which you don't give me, I could explain it. This is what also we can learn from, from quantum physics and so on, that... Uh, the ultimate reality which has a density, it's not an empty void, it's precisely the void of quantum oscillations and so on and so on. And this always fascinates me how what some vulgar, physics, uh, vulgar scientist may dismiss as just a crazy speculation, oh, void is full and so on and so on. No. It has some substantial reality. And may I use an old joke of mine where I will try, maybe successfully, maybe not, to illustrate this. There is, uh, uh, this, uh, there is an old joke of my favorite movie director, Ernst Lubitsch. I'm sorry if some of you know this joke. I quote it in all of my last books from Ninochka, where a guy goes into... Uh, Uh, cafeteria and says, can I get coffee, with coffee without cream, please? And 
you can guess what the waiter tells him. Sorry, sir, we don't have cream, we only have milk. So I cannot give you coffee without cream, I can only give you coffee without milk. And I think that's what we are after. As you said, uh, this cream or milk don't exist. So for a vulgar realist, you can say, we have plain coffee, and it doesn't matter. No, if you go deeper into it, we have three, coffee, plain coffee, coffee without milk, coffee without cream. Even if they are physically the same, they are not the same. And talking, talking about waiters and restaurants, you might wonder why did he place his uh, glass at the very corner edge of the table? To test your, if, you are the artist here, if you will catch it. <laughs> uh, if it's not a, an homage to the arrow that uh, was shot from one building to the other, that uh -huh. ended up exactly at the corner and was moving and it was about to fall before I grabbed it. No, it has to do with um, my uh, not suffering uh, bad waiters gladly when I go to a restaurant is that when I finish my meal, my plate, um, the courteous thing is for somebody to take it away, right? You don't want to be in front of a plate, so an empty plate. So very often uh, they don't do it, so I take my plate and I put it on, on the edge. And then the waiters passed because they went to the school of not looking, mm -hmm. therefore, okay. So then I put the plate a little bit more, you know, And then on the third passage, I put the plate like half, like a little thing like this will make me a tip, you know. Um, and it's ridiculous because I still don't notice. But anyway, um, it was my little um, echo of your story about uh, a waiter. I, uh, if you permit me now uh, uh, another metaphysical exercise, It may be again offensive to some of you, and then I will shut up for my time. It's a, one of the most beautiful Jewish jokes that a friend of mine told me. Uh, it's a very, in some sense, but I consider it sublime. A very beautiful joke. I think in it there is a space for what you are doing. Listen carefully. To understand this joke, you have only to know that when philosophers and theologists try to explain how something like Auschwitz was possible, they claim it's too horrible for God to allow it. God was not there. God couldn't have allowed such a horror to happen. So this sublime joke goes like this. Uh, three, four Jews who were killed in Auschwitz are now in paradise and they sit on a bench near a forest having nice talking and telling, that's crucial, jokes about how they died in Auschwitz. One says to the other, do you remember Jacob how when they dragged you to the gas chamber you slipped on a soap before and broke your skull so that you were not even touched, I mean, affected by gas, and they all laugh and so on. Then God comes by, looks at them and says, oh my God, uh, how can you laugh at this? I don't understand it. And one of the Jews goes to God, embraces him and says, don't worry, you were not there, of course you cannot understand it. I find this so wonderful because what God cannot understand is not the suffering there, but how 
you can make fun of it. You know, a, an, a dimension which escapes even God, the traditional God of supreme good, God who controls everything, everything works for God. But I think the way we talk about God, it's not God which is part of some divine edifice and so on. You're taking risks. It is very dangerous, I found out, to preface a joke by saying, I'm going to tell you a joke. This is a good philosophical point, yes. No, no, I have uh, other jokes, but uh, what, no, no. What I want to say is that, is there a notion of sacred or whatever, divine, which falls precisely into this domain which is outside our uh, hierarchic reality and so on and so on. Now, talking about this, if you permit me, or do you want... No, I was just reflecting, the divine for me is within ourselves. But again, nobody tells us, you know, and it's a matter of uh, discovering, inventing it, which means mm -hmm. to find actually from the uh, Latin etymology. And, uh, in, and, and we should be told as little kids uh, that there is the divine inside us, there is passion, there is dreams, and, and we have to get them out and make our life much more than a terrestrial life. And that was just a little echo on what I, you said. I, uh, but I am open to your next question. No, I agree with it, but you know, I am just afraid that in our decadent times, when you say it's within us, you go too quickly to some kind of unconscious depth or... No, but it's not, it's not deep in you in the sense of some dirty secrets and so on and so on. It's simply that another dimension is within us. But I want to say now something more to make a similar point uh, about belief and so on. You remember uh, uh, while... Okay, let's do now the big thing, so that I don't get lost. I propose, if you agree, that we now show the crucial, from documentary movie on you, the crucial five minutes. They are worth seeing. The walk itself, and it's so important, look at how, what you were said now, it's all in it, almost, you know. How you describe it, you are certain, anxieties are over, and so on. Because, allow me to say another thing. You know, when you describe just before all the harsh work, you had to acquire a false identity, enter the Twin Tower, and so on, all that. My very nasty idea was, my God, it sounded almost as if you are preparing a terrorist attack there. Yes. But you are d did it at a totally different level. It was, there was no ideological cause behind, nobody was to die, and so on and so on. But yes. that's what I like. It's as it were, I wouldn't even say terrorism. It's trespassing, but a purely ethical trespassing. I find this wonderful. Yes, I agree. You know, don't answer me like that, because then our dialogue will be like, I always use this joke, if you know philosophy, Plato. You know how late Plato's, the last dialogues of Plato look. One guy, Socrates or whoever, talks all the time, and every ten minutes or so, the other guy says, by Zeus, so it is Socrates, and so on. <laughs> Let's not do this. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
let, so let's see and be careful about all the details. The sense of miracle, his certainty, precise formulations. We have to do it. It makes me cry whenever I see it again and again. Please uh, clip one, the walk. On the top of uh, Philip's uh, roof, there was the big wheel of the the machines. So as soon as the elevator would move, we would see the, the wheel starting to, to turn. I scream, la roue, la roue, to Jean-Francois, the wheel, the wheel, because I see the giant wheel starting in motion. And I know my fate has been written now. Time is no longer smiling at me. At that time, I was very worried. I think the first time I was really scared. Oh my God, he's exhausted like I am. I mean, not as much, but for what he has to do, it's, <laughs> it's really not a good thing. The wire is the worst wire we ever uh, did. And uh, I was really scared. On pensait tous que, évidemment, il est possible qu'il tombe. On y a tous pensé, mais on n'y croyait pas. On y pensait, mais on n'y croyait pas. And I had to make a decision of shifting my weight from one foot anchored to the building to the foot anchored on the wire. This is probably, I don't know, probably the end of my life to step on that wire. And on the other hand, something that I could not resist, and I didn't make any effort to resist, called me upon that cable. And, and death is very close. I start walking as a wire walker who is studying his cable. And instead of doing an entire study of the cable for the whole lens, seeing the first cavality and keep walking, seeing the middle, which is so soft and treacherous, seeing the second cavality, how it is. No, I do only go to the first cavality and I know enough. Now I'm going to perform. I saw his face changing. He was very tense, and all of a sudden there was something uh, like a relief in him. And from that time I thought, that's it. He's secure, it's good. And wow, that's... Uh, J'ai vu Philippe là-haut et c'était extraordinaire. C'était tellement, tellement beau. C'était comme s'il marchait sur un nuage. Et 
il y a eu des moments extraordinaires. Il s'est couché. Et ça, c'était l'extase de voir cette euh, image de Philippe couché là-haut. Et puis l'autre moment très très fort, c'est quand il... C'était tellement beau. Et quand il s'est agenouillé, il y a un moment où il s'est agenouillé et il a salué. Et donc, euh, et donc, je criais, regardez, regardez. Les gens ont commencé à, à se rassembler, mais personne ne voyait. Et ils me disent, mais qu qu'est-ce qu que vous voyez Et je leur disais, mais un funambule, regardez, un funambule, il marche, il marche. I sit down on the wine, one of my crossing, and I did something that amazed people. I actually look all the way down to look at something that I will never in my life see again. So I can tell you, and yes, probably it's a lie, but to me it's not. I heard the crowd. I saw the crowd. I hear them murmur. Beyond anything you can ever imagine. It's just mind-boggling. The awe of the event and the overwhelming largeness of the scale of the situation took my mind into a place where I really wasn't that concerned about him. It just, it, it was magical. It was just, uh, it was just profound. I don't know. I find this five minutes so incredible. First, just to mention it in passing. You have chosen it, or who? Eric Satie. Um, yes, and, and uh, if there are Music. pianists in the audience, they might agree with me that the interpreter was playing a little bit too, too fast. Uh, the word yeah. fast is not right, but uh, Eric Satie is, a, is daydreaming. And if you're not able to take uh, a certain respiration between notes, then you yeah. should not uh, attack Satie. So yes, I wanted the gymnopédie, but um, this interpreter is not to, to yeah, my but liking. You know, um, sorry, but sorry. anyway, um, there is something aerial about uh, Satie, and uh, also it's one step at a time, and in between steps there, there is a continent of silence, and uh, you were talking about territory before, and there is an absence of territory between each step of the wire walker, which makes it really a miracle when a wire walker walks with elegance and passion, um, because at each step there is a miracle being performed, and the danger, now I can talk about danger, not courage, not risk, but the danger for me is to fall prey to the miracle that I create, because each step, it's like doing magic, you know very well when you, when you make a coin disappear, as a magician you know what the coin is, but if you're a good magician, you really... 
you, you play with it and people believe your magic. So when I am on the wire, on a giant walk like that, improvise, and I create a step in a quarter of a mile, you know, uh, void, um, I just made something miraculous. And the danger for me is to say, wow, I am a man of miracle. I am creating this miracle. Then I will forget that I am human, which will mean instant death. Um, so it's a very strange thing because you need a lot of, of belief in, in other words to walk mm -hmm. elegantly on the wire. And you need to do something that I'm not very good at, to be humble. This is strange because uh, my impression from which I received from the entire film is that maybe this will even hurt you. You will not like to hear it, but it, beneath all this spectacle and so on, you are at a higher level a humble, in a good sense. A humble well, being in the sense that you are aware that when you are up there, it's not an expression of your ego, as it were. Well, you have to be humble because of surviving. A wire walker, um, there is something that should not be visible in a wire walker's performance, is the feeling of surviving. That's why my senses are uh, tenfold open. I smell better, I look better, I can see in the back, you know, somebody is about to touch a rope and they're going to be an undue vibration. I have to smell if something is burning. Maybe, maybe some of rope is, is caught far. Who knows? So you have to be on the wire full, full, full of sensations. Um, and and uh, it's, it's something very, very but difficult for a human to do. So, um, yes, this, this humbleness um, is a matter of survival. Because the minute you think you're indestructible, you're going to pay it with your life. And you deserve it. I mean, I'm talking in a cold way, but as a poet, the wire walker that falls deserves it. He didn't do his or her homework on the rigging, <laughs> or they were thinking out of humble, or lack of um, humbleness, that they are above humanity, that they are indestructible. The moment you think you are victorious, the defeat is very close, near. So you have to be in a state at each step of, of delight and wonder, because you're creating this miracle, it's impossible to do, and yet you're doing it. You are the author of the miracles, and yet what keeps you on the wire is this strange chemistry that has a lot to do with humbleness. <laughs> also, uh, what, uh, the way you described it here now in words and there in that clip that I admired is how... Uh, that it's not simply... Somebody, was it your, no, your friend who uses this word, from tension, anxiety, you pass into, what words does he use? Assurance, no, uh, release, no? But nonetheless, uh, what I admire is that, again, what I already said, this release, like magic floating there, is all the time sustained by an extreme attention and so on. And this is the true magic of... Yes, but the attention, and again, if your aim is to inspire people by walking in the sky yes. in a magnificent yes. way, and that's the only way it will inspire yes. people, if you're not a <clears throat> professor of balance, but if you are a half-man, half-bird, or an angel mm. passing, it will uplift 
the, the soul of the onlookers. And you only can, can do that if you, um, if you are not carrying the technique of wire walking. You see, the technique of wire walking, I mean, I, I practice, I am 70 years old, I practice three hours a day, I will Now, never still. retire. Now, Hello? still. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I have practiced basically my entire life, you know, from uh, 16 years old when I learned by myself the wire. So it's hours and hours of learning. But the minute on a wire in front of a, uh, the people, the minute you show one-tenth of that, then you become an ordinary wire walker. You should not show the difficulty. You should not show the danger. You should not show the 6,000 times you made this move. But you should reinvent it each time as if it's something improvised, as if it's a grace for the gods that they mm -hmm. gave you for a little ephemeral moment, the power to walk in the sky. So it's, it's a lot that a good wire walker has to carry besides his uh, mm -hmm. body and his balancing pole. You see, this brings me again to what I admire so much, that it is a moment of eternity, uh, relaxation and so on, trust, but sustained, produced by harsh work, training and so on. It's like for me, I wonder if you would agree with this metaphor, it's uh, for me the miracle that we find also in love of bliss, eternity, but eternity produced by hard temporal work. What's for me, and I find something vaguely similar in what you are doing, what's so magic in love? I'm not speaking about, I say that this uh, shit, bullshit, uh, love of humanity, blah, blah, but love of a singular person, passionate love. It's that on the one hand, it's totally contingent. You take that street when you walk home instead of another usual street, you encounter somebody there, it's totally contingent, but Once you, for contingent reason, fall in love, you experience it as if all your life led to it, you know. This paradox of eternity, you experience it as it. That's me, it was fate, you mentioned fate then, but in reality it's hard work behind it. That's my next point. And my last point, very short. The very, one of the last shots, I took it almost as a premonition. You know, you see the two towers, you see you walking, tiny spot, and there is a plane behind, up. You remember, in one, as if that plane is, hello guys, you will see me on September 11th. No? I did, I But did the it. message for me is precisely Sorry for vulgarity, fuck the plane. You are the real Miller. Well, it, I did a research because I was interested and I'm an archivist at, at heart. So it was a Tupolev going to Moscow. Oh my and God. And I was <laughs> thinking, did they thought it was part of the package of the trip to look on the left and to see a wire walker, you know, uh, walking there? Um, But anyway... Um, so what yeah, do they think, the pilots? This is some dirty imperialist trick or what? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
You know, you were talking in a green room. I make a little parenthesis yeah, yeah. because that's my specialty yeah. to either interrupt a talker or get on a tangent and get lost sometimes uh, in a Q&A. Sometimes yeah. somebody asks a question and I am so far away that I forget the question. But in a green room, you talked about your experience. We talked about uh, when the wind dances madly, which is a turbulence. Yeah. And you mentioned like in an airplane, uh, it's awful to have turbulence. So I'm going to give you my trick, and you can do that, is whenever you are in an airplane as a passenger and the airplane is start dancing and you really almost feel mm. sick and you're terrified, with your imagination, go along the, the line, open the aisle, open the cockpit, which in your imagination, the cockpit mm. are locked these days, and move the pilot and sit where the pilot is. Be the pilot. And now you'll have to deal with those currents and you'll have to deal with the, you know, move left because there is this. And, and as long as per imagination you are in control, then you're not going to be uh, subjective to that uh, turbulence. I have experienced that and that's my little uh, trick. Nothing to do with what we're talking about. Oh, one, one thing, one thing. Um, I don't know about you, but I have an enemy. And the enemy is time. So I always have a watch because I don't like to, to wear things. And I know that we should kind of uh, in 15, 20 minutes uh, conclude. And I was thinking maybe part of this um, evening should be uh, something that is inherent to me, should be to break the rules. Um, so already this is a, a kind of weird thing for a, a speaker on stage to dare to put a clock there. Okay, but don't look at it. It's just for me to look at it. But then breaking the rules is also, we have been for the past, whatever, a nice moment together. We have been in our territory where we feel very safe behind that table um, on stage. And our audience, probably they feel safe too. They are where the audience should be. So I thought, you know what? Let's try to break the rule, just, just for fun. Not for fun, being very serious, but I want to see something. I want to see what would it take for a speaker in, a, you know, in an event like this to go, um, I don't know, to just break the rules and to, um, for example, uh, sit here. Right? Uh, I'm not bothering you? No? Okay. And suddenly, look at that, you have everybody that's pretty much breaking the rule. So I'm going to stay here now for the next 12 minutes. No, I am not. But it was to illustrate that we should, life is so short, we should not take it for granted. We should break the rule in a, of course, in a moral uh, equilibrium. I'm not talking about being a criminal, although an artistic criminal, yes. And then, as I walk back to... Oh! <laughs> ah, yes. Um, um, so, oh, by the way, I, I want to make, again, I am breaking the rule, and I hope you, you, uh, you forgive me. Um, I was talking about gravity before, mm. and I was thinking, when are you going to ask me and I know you're going to ask me uh, about projects. And I thank you for that, because I would like to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I love you now. You know why? You know who talked like this? Stalin. Uh, he always yes. asked himself um, a question and then answered okay. it. Uh, yes. I'm higher than you, so I, I'm not holding the, uh, the, the seashell, but I have the, the speech right now. So I wanted to say, yes, this is a great question to ask a performer or a self-made 
I don't know, renaissance man, what are your projects, mostly if you will never retire? So I have to announce, we are in New York City, let's be bold, and then we, in two seconds, uh, the ball will be back in your hands. No problem. Um, is my next project is to give two consecutive tightrope workshops And the title is An Exploration in a Theater of Balance, right? At uh, SLAM, which is the wonderful warehouse that Elizabeth Streb created in Brooklyn. And Elizabeth Streb is a crazy choreographer who defies gravity. She has her dancers, you know, fall and climb and rappel down anyway. And after that, and that's the end of my little presentation about the project, I have a very dear project. It's a world premiere of a new high-wire performance, but it's not a high-wire, it's a low-wire, because as you said before, I was a dot in the sky between the towers, and what people very often want to see is the detail of your hands, mm -hmm. of your face, of your movement, and what I, it's called open practice, and for the first time in my life, again at SLAM, the uh, beautiful place of Elizabeth Streb, by the beginning of February, I'm going to present the world premiere of open practice, and it is simply six feet high, 20 feet long, on a wire, I am going to practice in front of the audience. And that will answer a lot of the question that people have, is how an artist does the impossible? Well, I will bring you into my secret chamber. And now the ball is back to you. Thank you. First, now, you probably, I hope, this is meant as a big compliment that you are evil enough to do this on purpose to make me feel guilty that I didn't ask. <laughs> And I really... I don't believe in guilt. Sorry? <laughs> yeah, for the time when we are up there in that domain. Why don't we, to conclude this part, uh, uh, nonetheless do something which will be a little bit more amusing and show a very strange... Clip number three, please. It's a short one, one minute. Don't be It's a short one? It's one minute and ten seconds. Good. Not too long. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and now I climbed down the steps of the Palais de Justice. I saw in the crowd an admirer. She was smiling beautifully and she came to me and she put her hands on, on my neck in a, in a loving way and she amorously said, uh, Philippe, I would like to be the first you person to to welcome you and to you know to celebrate with you and then let, 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 let's I, i can follow you anywhere so yes it did end up on a on a waterbed in a loft somewhere but here i went for a a, a very short little moment of 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 uh, i don't know of of uh, pleasure of the flesh how how disgusting but 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 i am sorry how beautiful too I mean, my friends were waiting for me. Annie, my girlfriend, it was a betrayal of my friends. And I remember I called and said, you know, I have many interviews to do, so I'll see you soon. This magnificent explosion of pleasure, let's say it. And then I went back, oh, frightened to death, you know, to my friends, thinking I'm really, I'm really a guilty guy. Well, you know, I have to, I have to say, um, 
I'm not completely disagreeing, but it's really gratuitous. It's not necessary. What I did, because I was really as an author when I wrote To Reach the Clouds, um, uh, the book that gave uh, birth to Man on Wire and to the film of Zemeckis, The Walk, um, I wanted to be truthful to the, to the mud and to the gold of that six and a half years adventure. And I described the sex scene in a little poetic paragraph and it became on the screen this it's really not necessary but anyway that was my gut reaction no uh, no what but is your profound no, no. question my, my, about sex it's not so profound not big it is precisely that i think that it is totally wrong to read this scene as you are now famous you make you used it a little bit and so on in a way it's not a betrayal of anyone it's beyond that it's done in some interspace and you are aware of it because you say empirically of course it's uh you even use the words disgusting it's or very important in life Yeah. to pose and to celebrate. And when yeah. the first, uh, um, what is the name of that plane that is not really a plane, the shuttle, when the shuttle for the first time went in space, <clears throat> they had a very rigid program that was written like your notes, yeah. you know. And when the, the appareil, the plane, the machine um, was perfectly lined up to land and it says do this do that at that moment when the three wheels and I might be wrong there might be more touch the tarmac the instructions said something they gave a timing seven seconds and it says seven seconds of elation meaning screaming throw things and then mm. go crazy celebrate yell and then What is number eight? I'll oh, do this, do this, do that, and, and go home. So we have forgotten, again, we have forgotten so many things. And I love what you said uh, 20 minutes ago about this. This life today is almost absurd and ridiculous. And, you know, but we have forgotten to enjoy the moment. We have forgotten to celebrate. And you know what? I love to celebrate. And I even find reason to celebrate when there is nothing to celebrate. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why, for example, uh, I hate for intense, intimate life these phrases which already in their form make it clear how vacuous, worthless they are. I hate when somebody tells me I went with my fiancé to have a weekend together and we spent some quality time together there and so on. In my now, universe, you go to Gulag. Now, that. I said to you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said to you earlier, I am a professional interrupter. Yes. Can I be professional with you? Uh, yes, so I am going to yes. interrupt yeah, yeah. because I know we, we are approaching, I'm not a, a producer here, but I am a performer, so of course I feel when the audience says, you know, that's nice, but uh, we don't want something that lasts six hours. So I thought it would be great. I noticed that in the audience, there are two kids, probably more, and those of you who have forgotten to grow up, I congratulate you, but there are two kids over there, and I was wondering maybe they have a question, and then it will open to a little Q&A if you, if you agree. So, um, do, yeah. I see you, you two uh, kids over there. Uh, do you have a question? And if you do, we don't need a mic, you can just tell me. As an old Stalinist, I hope this is all a performance a and he distributed question? the questions yes. before. You know. <laughs> yes, we do have a question. Hold on, yeah. we don't need a mic, I will repeat the question. Tell me, please. 
Sorry, I, we probably don't hear it most of us. Wow, I cannot believe it. This is a kid asking a profound um, adult question. Um, and the question is, when you were on the wire, what was, I, I am paraphrasing, uh, you can sue me, but um, <laughs> what was your sense of time? And this is a beautiful first question if, if we do a little short Q&A, which is always nice when you have a, a monologue, a dialogue with two people monologuing on stage. Mm. It's very nice to again break the rule, open the door to a little dialogue with the audience. But anyway, that first question about time is incredible because that's another thing that I experienced. When I was a quarter of a mile in the mm. sky, and, and a little parenthesis, uh, Zemeckis, the, the bad Hollywood movie. Uh, no, 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 the nice Hollywood movie. Um, advertise with a, you know, uh, historically uh, incorrect uh, poster. But I like what they found. They say 12 men walked on the moon, but only one between the towers. I, I like that. So anyway, <laughs> the sense of time, and you know, Einstein was right. Because there is a notion of relativity that you sense when you are a quarter of a mile in the sky. And then I look at the traffic. Maybe I didn't look. Maybe I sense it in a, with my eyes. And the traffic was slow motion. Because at that height, time is deformed. And all your sensations are from another world. So uh, as I was walking, time did not exist. It's a really beautiful question. And... It was an eternity. Now, yeah, I yeah, knew yeah. I couldn't stay there for an eternity. And I knew why. Because I felt the gods were getting angry at me. Well, the birds were seeing me trespassing. And pun intended, mm. I was trespassing in their territory. But also, they were being gentle and generous and patient in allowing me to walk. And I didn't plan it. It was all improvised. My friends told me, I didn't have a watch. Mm -hmm. My friends told me, Philippe, you stayed 45 minutes yeah. on that wire. They told me, they counted. You did eight crossing. I didn't know. I was there for an eternity. And yet at some point, I had to...
It was not some kind of a, totally not, some kind of primitive psychological identification.